Coming up on Something is About to Happen. You are perfectly loved by God. He cannot love you more than he presently does right now. Please get that. He cannot love you more, nor can he love you less. Less. He loves you to the zenith of his capacity to love. And also, there's nothing that you can do that will make him love you more. Or nothing you will do wrong that will make him love you less. His love is not based on the fluctuation of your own behavior. His love is as constant as he is. That's why he's called the rock. Law or grace, where do you stand? You can give from a distance and offer no personal presence, just the message you sent, the gift that you couriered. God has had many couriers over the years and Moses was merely a man and simply a courier of a message. That's how the law was given through Moses, the man of God. In giving the law, the lawgiver was not physically present. He was distant. But when it comes to grace, God himself in Christ came to deliver grace with truth alongside the grace. See, what I'm trying to tell you is that law was given through a manservant, but grace came through God the Son. I could have sent a video this morning, but I didn't. I could have filmed it at home and sent it to you, but I came from my house. I'm here. And when grace came, grace didn't send a message. Grace came personified, the one who is the grace of God himself. He epitomizes that grace. So listen to a few contrasts. The law reveals what man ought to be at the level of pristine perfection, what he ought to be, like he was before the fall of Adam. Righteous, holy, and totally obedient, just like God. While grace reveals who God is and what God is like. The first miracle under the law was Moses who came into Egypt to ask for the deliverance of the children of Israel and when the Pharaoh refused, he turned all the water in all of Egypt into blood, which was a sign of death and devastation. But look at, in contrast at the first miracle of grace. And the first miracle of grace, Jesus shows up at the wedding feast of Canaan and Galilee and he turns water into wine, which was a sign of life, jubilation, celebration, and joy unspeakable and full of glory. Showing that under the law, you, all we were going to get was death and devastation. Because the law was not given to give you life. But under grace, you're going to get life, joy unspeakable, full of glory. Righteousness flowing like a running river. Hallelujah. Under the law, God demands righteousness uh, from mankind that are consumed and inebriated by sin and its intoxication. Under grace, in contrast, God imputes the free gift of righteousness unto man and does not impute sin unto mankind. So why then do preachers mix law and grace? I call that kind of preacher DJ. 
And mixing law and grace is wrong. It's actually more dangerous than just the law. But when you mix law and grace, you create something so devastating to the believer that you leave the believer up under curses and up under the judgments of failing to keep the law or not doing right. And so Jesus cautions in the parable and he says, don't put new wine in old wineskins. And the reason why he says that is because new wine is going to ferment. And when it expands, because an old wineskin is brittle, it will break. And you lose both the old wineskin and the new wine. And that way you've lost the potential for grace. And any benefits that could have come up under the law, you miss all that too. And he cautions and he's strong about it. Mixing the law is one of the worst things because you lose both the law and the grace. And the law has its usefulness, and we'll talk about that sometime this morning. But I'm glad to tell somebody that God has changed the rules. I said, there's a change in the house of God. He's changed the rules. You don't have to accept the curses of the law in Deuteronomy 28. You don't have to accept judgment or condemnation. You can stand in a life in Christ and be made completely free from all the impact of the law of sin and death and enjoy the gracious glory of God that have been abrogated to Jesus Christ and all who live a life in him. Glory to God. What it's called then is undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor. Now all of you who are not favored, please sit pretty, stitch your two lips together and act important. But those of you who understand, not by any doing of your own, not by any works of the law, not by any performance or lack of performance on your part, God has planted you in a place where you are permanently, forever, unmeritoriously, without earning it, favored by God. That means when you walk into a place, uh, the least likely are going to get blessed the most mighty. That means when you show up, God shows up, even though he's invisible, you are going to be so blessed because the fragrance of his glory is upon your life. Now, all of you who are still under the law, please say nothing, but the rest of you, I want you to lift your right hand and declare, I am blessed and highly favored. And there's nothing that the devil can do about it. Because it's not based on me. It's not predicated on my performance. It's predicated on his performance. That means neighbor, watch out for me. Because things are going to get better and better and better and better and better still. And exceedingly and abundantly over and above all that I can ask, imagine, or think. And tell them, neighbor, watch out for me because I am blessed and favored just as the same way that the risen Christ is in glory. Favor to be whole, favor to be prosperous, favor to increase, favor to get married, favor to have the baby, favor to build my own house, favor to go to the next several levels. I'm blessed and highly favored. It wasn't my doing. They just told me about what somebody else did for me and I believed it because his story was credible. And now I see a phenomenon in my life, the favor of God. I don't know about you, but I stand perpetually in God's favor. I noticed it. And then I read it. And now I'm enjoying it. 
Hallelujah to God. Hmm. It's called unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. And so we see Christ on the mountain. And he delivers a sermon on the mount. And he says some very tough things. And I heard one preacher bungle it and mix law and grace. And he said, he said to us, and he was teaching with every assurance and confidence, but it was not accurate. And he told us, he said, that when Christ taught that grace is harder than law. Now, after all, uh, under grace, if you sleep with a woman, you have committed adultery. But under Christ, he said, that if you just look at her, you have already committed adultery. He took the scripture completely out of context and did not accurately divide the word of truth. He's unapproved unto God. Yeah? For what was Christ doing? In the Sermon on Mount, when he said things like, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, he said, pluck it out. Has anybody here plucked their eye out before? Every sin you committed, it was your eye that caused it. And generally, if it was something that required you to sign something or do something, your hand also participated. It was complicit. But what Jesus was not doing, he was not saying that you should do that. Otherwise, the whole church, everybody will be an amputee. And say to a neighbor, he must be talking about you. He's not talking about me. And we'd all be blind, no eyes. In fact, they have to make extra eyes to take some more eyes out. What he was doing was he was confounding the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they had made the law most manageable and made it practicable for people to enjoy it and live it. But what he was doing was he was taking the law to its pristine level of purity and perfection. So that man would know, I cannot keep the law. It is impossible. And the law was not given for man to keep. It was given to show man that in his own strength, he cannot keep the law. And so the Pharisees, they said that if you sleep with the opposite sex, that you have committed adultery or fornication. But Jesus said, I say to you that if you look at a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery in your heart. So the one who has commission and the one who had intention is the same hellfire. So who is going to talk? You know, the message of Christ introduces humility. And it takes away the judgmental and critical spirit. Hallelujah. And then this one blew my mind. He said, if you kill somebody... You're a murderer, and you're going to go to hell for that. He says, but I say to you, if you so much as hate your brother, you are also a murderer. What he was doing, he was raising the law to its pristine, unattainable standard to let man know that you can't keep the law in self-effort. You know what's also dangerous? The law is one whole composite. So if you break one, you are guilty of all because all are interwoven in God's eyes, one law. Ten clauses, but one law. It's called righteousness. And righteousness by obedience was only possible to one person, God in Christ, the man Jesus. I hope you're with me.
Now, if you look at Christ, he was an expert at using the law to bring legalists uh, of those days to the end of themselves and to a beginning with the Savior. He was an expert. He didn't mean for you to literally pluck out your eye or cut, cut off your hands. If he did that, you would only have stumps. And when we ask you to clap hands, you'd have to clap stumps. And everybody would be so dwarfed in church because you would have lost your leg limbs. So Jesus did not stay up on the mountain of pristine purity. He came down to the plains of human hurt and human suffering, human brokenness and human infirmity. And as he came down to the reality of the human pain of mankind, a leper, a leper broke into the space and knew that as an unclean man, because a leper had to ring a bell and shout unclean, unclean, and wear a certain kind of garment because she was not allowed to be in society lest the leprosy, which was contagious in, in their minds, would pass on to others. And he comes up to Christ and breaks in and says, if you really want to, you can make me clean. Now, this was against the law because uh, leprosy was a contaminant. It was contaminated. It was contagious. It was infectious. And uh, under the law, leprosy or the unclean makes the clean unclean. But under grace, when the clean touches the unclean, the clean and the unclean become clean. You get it? But, but under the law, when the unclean touches the clean, the unclean and the clean now are now unclean. And he looked at the master and said, if you want to, you can make me whole. You can make me clean. He did not doubt that the master could cleanse him. What he doubted was, will the master cleanse me? And the master looked at him and was impressed by his faith. And he said, I will. You are cleansed. And he touched the leprosy. I believe that he touched the sore of the leprosy. And instantly there, the whole body was healed of Hansen's disease. Just like that. Grace came. Law said you can't even come into community. You can't even go and see the doctor. But, but grace came. Under law, sin is infectious. But under grace, the righteousness of God is even more infectious. And it's not infection with a bad thing. It's an infection with a good thing. The righteousness and the goodness of God are highly transmissible. And therefore, I must say to you that grace correctly understood does not cause licentiousness. Let's look at Romans 6 and 14. Romans 6 and 14. And there in Romans 6, 14, he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under the law anymore. You are under the grace of God. You are eternally favored by God. When you are under grace, you cannot but be holy. You are holy in God's eyes. It's like, simply put, you cannot be in water and not be wet. You cannot be in grace and not be blessed, holy, righteous, perfect in God's eyes. And when you accept that, it starts working in you. Hallelujah. 
David saw into this new covenant. David was not only a king, he was a messianic prophet. Hallelujah. You see, under the law, you have to repent before God can bless you. But under grace, God blesses you into his goodness. And then the goodness of God makes you change your mind about how you used to see God before. That is called repentance. It's the Greek word metanoia. So God's goodness promotes transformation. The goodness of God, the Bible says, leads men to repentance. And that repentance, metanoia in the Greek, is a constant change. The more you hear and hear and hear about the message of Christ, your change about how you see God, how you see how God sees you, it changes and changes. And the result is there's a, there's a commensurate transformation in your life where you enter a state of blessedness to a degree where even you cannot believe it, that if you had the heart to sin, you too would change your mind. And, uh, where somebody's just so good to you and you do bad, he gives you good. Say, God, why? Say, because I'm not like you. I want you to be like me. And you do more bad. He does you more good. You know, sin can never overcome grace. Grace is greater than sin. Far greater. So the more you sin, God will pour more grace on you. But the only thing that stops that grace and blessing of, the blessing of grace coming on you is when you trap yourself under the law. And you feel that it's something you do that causes God to bless you. There are people here, they are struggling with this. But it's your Bible. We show you in the scriptures. As the scriptures have said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was not a righteous man by performance. Hallelujah. He, anybody who can give his own wife to another king as plaything or who can lie and say she's my sister, I didn't marry her. And he didn't tell it to one king, told it to two different kings. And his son told the same lie to the same king about his own wife. And you say that the sins of the father under the law are not visited to the children up to the third and fourth generation. Of course they are under the law. But under grace is the blessing of God that abounds forever. This thing we have is a perfect love. You are perfectly loved by God. He cannot love you more than he presently does right now. Please get that. He cannot love you more, nor can he love you less. He loves you to the zenith of his capacity to love. And also, there's nothing that you can do that will make him love you more. Or nothing you will do wrong that will make him love you less. His love is not based on the fluctuation of your own behavior. His love is as constant as he is. That's why he's called the rock. And his love works in your life by faith. And faith itself works by understanding that love. Faith is how you receive God's love. It's how you receive his righteousness. It's how you receive no condemnation. It's how you receive the life in Christ that sets you free from the law of sin and death. Transformation or change is different from tears that you cry at an altar. Because I've seen people come to the altar cry and shed tears. And they go home, they're not changed at all. Let me tell you what changes you. The engrafted word of God. The word grafted from the message of Christ into your understanding is what causes you to change. Salvation doesn't take place at an altar. It takes place when you grasp understanding of the truth. You shall know the truth and the truth you know is what makes you free. Hallelujah. So, it's the hearing of sound teaching 
according with accuracy to the word of God that changes your mind. And as your mind changes, you change. Most people's thoughts about God, he's a very wicked God, I don't want your God. He's harsh, hard, severe. And yes, my God is just, but he's also merciful. And it's in Christ he combines the two with such ingenious skill that one does not impede the other and the other is not impeded by the one. Look at the journey of the children of Israel from Egypt to Sinai. It's a picture of pure grace. So they come out of Egypt on the back of the 10th plague where God killed the firstborn of all the Egyptian homes. And for the next 50 days, Israel is constantly murmuring and complaining about Moses and about this their God that he's introducing them to. Now understand that at that time, they are not under the law. The law has not yet started. They are under the Abrahamic covenant, which is the gospel of promise. It's the gospel just as he heard it. It's the same gospel we heard. Hallelujah. So although they murmured and complained throughout the 50-day journey to Sinai, no one person died in those 50 days. Not one. Under the law, murmuring and complaining is sin. That's why when they got to Sinai for things that they did between Egypt and Sinai that God didn't kill them for, the moment they thought about it or did it, God killed them in droves, in thousands, scores of thousands. Hallelujah. Let's look at the first one. At the Red Sea impasse, they've gotten to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's cavalry is hot on their trail. The horses are pounding. Uh, there's an impassable body of water in front of them. They, there's no canoe. There's no bridge. There's no boat. Mountains on either side, so there's nowhere to run. And guess what? They start complaining that were there not enough graves in Egypt for you to bury us here in this wild desert? And they said, we're going to stone you, Moses. Moses fell before God, cried out, and said, God said, stand still. You will see the salvation of God. Look at the wickedness of their complaint and sin. And God still opened the Red Sea for them. He was kind to their complaining, murmuring lifestyle. But then their water became bitter at a place called Mara. And guess what? They murmured and complained at Moses that why did you and this your God do this to us? What did God do? He made their bitter water sweet. Then they came to the base of Mount Sinai. And you'll find that story in Exodus chapter 19. And they said to Moses of his God that anything that God wants us to do, that we will do. If you look at it, and I said correctly in the Hebrew, they actually said all that God has commanded or can command us, we can do. That's the proper Hebrew. All that God can command, we can do. It was an affront to God. That, that you're saying that anything I can ask of you to do or command you to do, you will do it in your own strength. And God said, all right. His tone changed immediately. From that point, he treated them differently. This is a picture of mankind depending on his own self-righteousness to perform on God's request. Prior to this moment, God had blessed them not because they were faultless, but because he is good. He blessed them on his own character. And what they wanted God to do was, don't bless us based on your goodness, bless us based on our obedience. They exchanged grace for law. From this point, God's tone with them changed. He said, Moses, tell them don't come near. They could not come to the mountain. 
Yet prior to, he was the pillar of cloud by, by day, right there with them. The pillar of cloud, pillar of fire by night, right there to separate between them and their assailant enemy. Hallelujah. And all of a sudden, he now puts distance between him and mankind. In other words, if you want me to bless you based on your obedience and on your own goodness, then don't come near me lest you die. God never used that tone with them before. He was close to them before. He was the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He was there, a rock out of which water flowed, there to meet all their needs, anything they wanted, even though they complained against him, he supplied it abundantly. And in the next chapter, chapter 20 of Exodus, he releases the law, the big ten. So God did not say, if you break one of my commandments, you are guilty of one. No. Said if you break one, you are guilty of all. It was one composite. That meant if you if you miss one jot or one tittle, you are guilty of all the 613, including the 10. <laughs> Hallelujah to God. And right after Sinai, as soon as they had said that to God, that whatever you command us, we can do. From that point on, God now started to treat them according to the law, and they started dying under judgment in their 20s, 30s, hundreds of thousands. They're now dying for what they were being blessed for before Sinai. For 1,500 years, God put Israel under the law and the best of them failed. Even David, the righteous king, failed. Law condemns the best of us, but grace saves the worst of us. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6 and 7. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6 and 7 who also has made us able ministers of the New Testament, of the message of Christ. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What he's saying is that when you are a messenger or a minister of the grace of God, what happens is there's sufficiency there, there's supply there, there's charisma, there's charismata, there's charis there, hallelujah. There's enablement, glory to God. But when you are a minister of death, when you're a minister of the law, what does the law do? It kills. But the Spirit of God gives life to the messenger and the message of Christ. It's very simple. Hallelujah. Give me verse 7. But if the ministration of death, this is where I really want to come to, written and engraven in stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly Behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away with. So look at this. The ministration of death was engraven in stones. This is not the 613 requirements because they were not written in stone. He's talking about the law. The Ten Commandments. That's what he's talking about here. Because the 613 codifications were not written on stone. They were written on parchment. It is the law that was written on stone. So what is he calling the law? A ministry of death. Yet in our churches, we preach the Ten Commandments series for three months. Killing you softly. <laughs> killing you slowly. Hallelujah. Do you get it? So when we talk about the law, we're not talking about the codes. We're not talking about the rituals, the rites. We're talking about the stone. Why do you think Jesus said at Lazarus' tomb, roll the stone away? 
because the law would get in the way of Lazarus coming out from the grave under the grace of God. Hmm. Can you take some more? All right. Let's, let's look at this. The first Pentecost was right there at Sinai, 50 days after Passover, 50 days after coming out from Egypt. And on that day, when he gave the law, 3,000 people died for touching the mountain of Sinai. 3,000. At the first Pentecost, 50 days after the cross, which was also the same day as Passover, men were in an upper room and the Spirit of God fell upon them out of heaven and they went out to preach the message of Christ. Guess what happened? 3,000 souls received divine life, were born again and saved by the power of God. Because under the law, you die. You die to God, you die to Zoe life, you die to the sufficiency and supply of the Spirit. But under grace, you come to life. Your purpose comes to life. Your reason for being comes to life. Your glory comes to be your reality. Hallelujah to God. Why? Because on Mount Sinai, there's death and destruction. On Mount Zion, there's life and grace. Hallelujah. At Mount Sinai, you're under the law. At Mount Zion, you are under grace. Hallelujah. The Bible says we have come unto Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, unto God, the judge of men, unto the spirits of just men made perfect, unto Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, unto the blood of sprinkle that speaks better things than the blood of Abel, unto an innumerable company of angels. What are angels? The administrators the executors of the inheritance of the righteous. On Sinai, the law, it kills, the letter kills, but on Zion, the spirit gives life. Let's move our families to the right mountain. Let's move our families from Sinai to Zion. Let's move our pulpits from Sinai to Zion. Let's move our ministry from Sinai to Zion. Let's move our Bible studies from Sinai to Zion. Let's move our thinking from Sinai to Zion. Slap somebody a high five no give them an elbow tell somebody get away from the wrong mountain get away from it no wonder we are shaking because you know when trouble happens in a nation and you're standing on the wrong mountain you're going to shake but when you're standing on the right mountain baby there's no shaking here can I tell you why turn with me to Psalm 125 and verse 1 it was David who said this they that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion which cannot be removed but abideth forever hear me child of God look at the second verse and look at the third verse as the mountains are around Jerusalem so also the promise keeping God is round about his people from henceforth even forever look at verse 3 for the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous let the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity what does he say no matter what is rampaging the country and the hell that's going on from high quarters friend if you are on Mount Sinai you have reason to shake but if you are standing on Mount Zion they can't get to you until they get past God for God says as the mountains surround Jerusalem how completely God surrounds you on every side and he promises therewith that the rod the wickedness of mankind will not rest on the lot of the righteous who am I preaching to this Sunday morning if that's you I want you to lift up your two hands and shout I'm not under law 
I am under the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not standing in Sinai. I'm standing on Zion. I'm not standing under a curse. I'm standing under forever favor and blessing. If you believe it, shout yes, somebody. Law, law, my friends, is good, it's righteous, it's perfect, it's holy. But the law has no ability to make anybody good, perfect, righteous, or holy. Can I get a witness from somebody? Give me an iPad or something if you don't mind. Give me my iPad. The law is like a mirror. The law is like a mirror. And you know, when you go into the mirror and you look at the mirror, can I tell you one truth about it? If what you see when you look in the mirror is ugly, it's not the mirror's fault. It's you. Because the mirror is brutally honest. It doesn't bend. It tells the truth all the time. It's not gonna lie to you like that fair to the fairest of them all. No, it's not gonna say that. It'll tell you the truth. If you're black, you're black. If you're green, you're green. If you're ugly, you're ugly. If you're very ugly, the mirror is telling the truth, you're very ugly. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to show you who you really are. So that you come to the recognition of the fact that you have fallen short of the glory of God. But that law, it will show me all my blemishes, all my spots, all my, my hyperpigmentation and hyperpigmentation, but it can't fix it. So I don't take the mirror and then rub it on my face to clean the blemishes. I know I need the cream. I know I need the medicine. I know I need a salve or salvation. But, but the mirror can't be the salvation. It cannot perfect you. Because as he said in Romans chapter 8, I believe verse 2 or th verse 3 and 4, for what the law could not do because it was weak through the flesh, God did by condemning sin in his son. You get it? I hope you, I hope you do. Shout at somebody, tell them, get away from the wrong mountain. Now, you see, when you preach law, what you do is you make, people, you make people feel that law will make them lawful. Law cannot make you lawful. Law just turns you into what I call a judgmental hypocrite. And it makes you a great actor. Because the law teaches people to pretend. And they wear all the long garments, cover all the stuff up with fig leaves. But behind the fig leaves, you have no idea what's going on. Hallelujah. You didn't say amen well. But grace is transformational. You don't have to act when you come before Christ. But the law will never make you lawful. It, it generally is not going to kill lawlessness in your life. But grace is transformational. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 verse 56. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. In other words, if sin doesn't have law, it has no strength. So the sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law. Without law, there's nothing like sin. Sin has no power. So who do you think will try to bring the law back into the church? If the strength of sin is law, if Satan wants to make the church sin, what is he going to do? He's going to bring the law. So the person that preaches the law the most is either an agent of Satan or Satan himself. Hallelujah. It will only be the devil because the law is his armory and arsenal of weapons. So
So Satan's name in Hebrew is Ha-Satan. What does Ha-Satan mean? My cousin will enjoy this. It means prosecutor at law. So what is the prosecutor's job? The prosecutor's job is to find out everything that is wrong with the defendant. And then charge them on the basis of violation of law and provide evidence. That's the prosecutor's job. That's what the prosecutor is there for. He's not there to make you look good. So when you do wrong, he tells you you are very wrong. When you do right, he says you are not doing enough. You get it? So Satan is called the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But let me say this to you. He cannot kill, steal, or destroy anything about you, you, or your life without first being the accuser. It is his ability to accuse you based on charges that you violated law that now gives him opportunity and access to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Do you understand? So a prerequisite to kill, steal, and destroy is to accuse you first. He is not called the destroyer. He is not called the thief. He's not called the killer. He's called the accuser. Let's look at how God disarmed him in history and recorded in the scripture. Look at Colossians chapter 2 verse 13. Colossians 2 and verse 13. And in Colossians 2.13, what does he say? He says, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has quickened together with Christ, having what? Forgiven you. That's past continuous. That's what the having is there for. Forgiven you what? Some of your sins. By all, he's referring to the entire expanse of the sins in your lifespan. Hallelujah. So that's already done. How did he do it? Where did he do it? Go to verse 14. He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and did what? Took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to God. The operative word there is an interesting word that is in the next verse. Uh, verse 15, he says, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in the cross. So how did he take the handwritings uh, that were contrary to us out of the way? He did it by nailing them to the cross. And this key word here is spoiled. That word spoiled in the Greek is apekdumai. Yeah? And it's rendered in a few ways depending on the tense. But what does it mean? It means to disarm, to strip. So when the, the prosecutor comes, he comes armed with evidence. He comes armed with, armed with his weapons. And what Christ did on the cross is he took all his weapons away from him. What was the primary thing in his weapon, weaponry? It was the arsenal of law. He took the law out of the way, nailed it to his cross, nailed it to the tree, and, and it became accursed for us that the blessing of Abraham would come upon us. Satan is disarmed. He has no weapons. He tries to deceive you that you, he does have weapons, but he has no more. All his teeth with which he used to bite have been pulled. He lost his weapons, but Christians don't know that. They don't understand that he's shooting blanks. So even if he points the gun at you, it's not loaded. Hallelujah. The biggest lie of the devil then is that without the law, you become lawless. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Abraham lived more than 430 years before the law was given. So how did Abraham become tight with God that God called him my friend? 
And we find two really incredible stories, but I want you to look at Romans 2, verse 4, B clause, Romans 2, verse 4. And he says in the B clause, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance. So until you see the goodness, you're not going to change. Badness only brings you to operate under fear. And fear is obedience not by heart, but by dread. That's not what God wants from you. I want my wife to love me from her heart, not according to a rule book that I place out there. Don't do this, don't do this, do this, do that, do this. No, just love, two commandments. There are two interesting chapters that you find in the Bible in Luke chapter 18 and Luke chapter 19. One deals with a lawyer, the other deals with a sinner. One thinks he's going to be justified by the law, the other just falls in love with Jesus and is awed by him. And as a result, he comes to grace. Grace, in fact, comes to him. Grace didn't send the message, grace came to him. So let's look at chapter 18 first. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus Christ and he asks a question. Master, or good master, what shall I do? Emphasis on do. Because he felt that in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven, I must do something. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, there's nobody good but God. You know that. Yeah. Um, and he says, all right, you know what to do. You know the big ten. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. First commandment with a promise. Uh, and you'll make the kingdom of heaven. And the guy said, oh, all that. I've been doing it from when I was young. He said, all right. He was acting. He said, all right. Go and sell all that you have. Give all to the poor and then follow me and you'll have eternal life. The Bible says the man went away sad. He wasn't even willing to obey what Christ said. See what I'm saying? Why? Because his God was his money. Jehovah was not his God. He had an outward appearance of righteousness, self-righteousness, self-effort, but he didn't worship and honor the true and living God. He didn't. What Jesus could have done to him is simply just given him the coy evangelical answer when he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He would have said, believe on me, as the scriptures have said, and you and your whole household will be saved. But he didn't. He brought the man to the law. And he used the law to crush the man's self-effort and bring his ego to its end. And that man, many theologians believe, was St. Paul, the rich young Sanhedrin ruler, uh, scholar, that because he was in the ruling class, he had a lot of wealth at a tender age. And he broke him. And he kept breaking him. And eventually, when he broke him on the road to Damascus, what Paul learned in the scriptures became so useful to the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. So what Jesus did is he gave him the law to make him ripe for salvation. This man was boasting about his works of the law. Uh, 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 and, and he knew uh, he wasn't saved. So he had been obeying, but he knew he wasn't saved. Otherwise, he wouldn't have come to ask, how do I get saved? Yeah. Anytime they boast in the law, Jesus shows up and says, one thing you lack. He points out just one thing. You know, there are these folk who we know how to boast. That I do this, I do that, I do this, I'm this for God, I'm that for God. I wake up, I pray 12 hours, I pray 7 hours, I do this, I do that, and the other. And they carry it as a badge of superiority. When they show up around God, Jesus has a way of showing them and just tells you one thing. And the man went away quietly, tucked his tail between his legs, and went away sad. Because he knew that Jehovah was not his God. That his God was money. That he loved his money more than God. That he wasn't willing to give the money away. 
Law makes people tight-fisted and stingy. Law also closes the door to receiving wealth with joy and peace. Hallelujah. God did not give the law for man to be justified by. He gave the law to man so that man would come to the end of himself. So that all men would see their guilt. Um, that the law only made them guilty and recognized their need for a savior. Hallelujah. He went away sorrowful. Luke 19 gets more exciting here. Jesus comes to Jericho. There's a throng around him. He's setting up for the great triumphant entry. He's en route to that place of glory. And the Bible says there was a guy who was blessed with low. He was short of the glory of God. And he tried to see Christ, just wanted to see him. He knew that if I could just see him, I'll be blessed. But God had better plans for him than just to see Jesus. So he figured, I can't get to see him because of the crowd. So he ran to the path he knew Jesus would take, climbed up a sycamore tree, and, and went up to look just so he could see Jesus. And when Jesus got to the bottom of the tree, he looked up at a man who was a tax collector. And not just a tax collector, the chief of tax collectors. Which meant he was a traitor to the Jews, collecting tax from Jews to pay to the Romans. Yeah? To give to the scoundrels. And Jesus looked at me and said, Zacchaeus, come down. For this day, I will abide in your house. In other words, I'm going to relax in your home. I'm going to feel comfortable with you, for to your kind, I was sent. See all these Pharisees? I wasn't sent to any of them, except with the Bulala. Yeah, said, I'm going to your house. The moment he said that, the whispering started. Does he not know that that man is the chief of sinners? Like they said of Jesus, eh, what, what is he doing sitting alone with a woman at the well? Especially since he knew that she didn't come in the morning when women normally come. She came at, at noontime when she knew, knew that nobody else would be there because she was a man grabber. And yet the master is sitting alone with a man grabber. We are hungry and we're going to eat. As we go, the woman comes and she's there with him. And they come and say, Master, is everything all right? Would you like something to eat? He said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. What happened? The thing about God, he likes for you to take from him. Because no matter how much you take, you can never deplete him. You can never diminish him because he's infinite. You cannot diminish, divide, or subtract from infinity. Hallelujah. And he said, it is my meat to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, when you take from me, I become enlivened. I get excited. Because uh, uh, grace abounds once you can create a pressure difference. Once you start taking from me, um, you enliven me because I love to give. So here's Zacchaeus. He comes down and Jesus goes with him to the house. And he's there relaxed. The rumors are spreading rife through the area. That can you imagine Jesus is with this person, the teacher, we thought so much of him and look at him. He's here in a sinner's house. Jesus required no works of law from Zacchaeus. Yet he asked for the Ten Commandments from the rich young ruler. He was dealing with two different kinds of people. One who depended on obedience to give him a sense of righteousness. The other knew, I am not obedient. I need a savior. And look at what happened. The rich young ruler did not give a dime. 
But after enjoying grace with Jesus in his house all day, Zacchaeus, without the prompting of the master, just seeing the goodness of God abiding in his house, had an atmosphere there. He said, I, I commit to give all my assets to the poor. And if I've extorted anybody by my taxation system, I will refund fourfold. Yet Jesus never asked him for anything. You know why? When grace comes upon your life, it opens your heart, it'll make you open your house, it'll make you open your wallet, it'll make you generous because you know that you can never outgive the one who sent you to give. That you open your faucet because you have a reservoir that is open to you. That's what grace does. It's about believing correctly. I know I'm going to prosper. I haven't started yet. I know I'm going to live long. The assassin's bullet will not find me. It already found Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. You know why? Because you're hidden Christ in God. As he is, so are you in this world. When he was on the cross, he took your sickness. He took your shame. He took your pain. He took your sorrows. He took your burdens. He took your hell. He took your grief. Why? So that instead of your grief, he would give you glory. Instead of your grave, he will give you his place at the right hand of the Father. Instead of in Hades, he'll give you his place in heaven. Instead of your shame, he gave you his success. Hallelujah. When he arrived back in heaven after resurrection, upon ascension, can you imagine what happened in heaven? The celebration that went on there, the mystery had been unveiled completely. He was exalted to the highest place of all of heaven. The most exalted one, everything was put at his place. That he said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. And by implication, under the earth. That's why he had to go to hell. He had taken authority in heaven, took it on earth. He had to go to hell to take it there. So that hell has no power over you. Neither does death nor the grave. You've got it going on. My question is, where do you stand? Where do you stand? When you get something wrong, are you going to say I was disqualified? Or I would be disqualified? Because of what I got wrong. Or when you get things right, are you going to say, God, you know, I really qualify now. So the way you interpret the righteous as bold as a lion is when you do righteousness, then you have the right to be bold. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with who you believe and why you believe who you believe. Hallelujah. And that's the basis upon which I take what grace makes. Do you get it? If you get this, you are going to see your life in every area move into the glory of being perpetually favored, unearned, undeserved, and unmerited. <laughs>